Well, you know, seeing, seeing as God sees is no easy task. It's not one of those things that, that you can just decide to do. It takes determination and courage. And of course, there's, there's no way to see everything, to see all things that, that God sees. But I think we can see what He wants us to see. And I think we can see in ways that He wants us to see. But it can be dangerous. When we choose to start seeing as God sees, it can be dangerous because we start looking at the world differently. You'll begin to, you'll begin to see things that only those who are truly in tune with God can see. You'll begin to think and, and act differently. You'll begin to see people differently. You'll begin to see suffering and, and poverty and evil differently. You'll see brokenness and hopelessness, despair and, and devastation in people's lives. But you'll also see more goodness. You'll see more hopefulness. You'll see more love. We'll begin to act differently, which may not always be a, a popular choice, but as we begin to see as God sees, we'll learn to operate more strategically, more covertly at times as we engage the enemy and as we wage spiritual warfare for the kingdom of God. And this, this brothers and sisters, this is what God calls us to. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about a man who loved God with all his heart. But he not only loved God with all his heart, he loved God's Word deeply. And he took great care to, to follow God's Word and to put it into to practice into his life. And because of this, as we're going to see in just a minute, because of this devotion to the Word of God, God's hand was on him and he was able to see as God sees. Of course, that man's name is Ezra. Now, uh, I love God's Word. I love the Bible. I love Scripture. I love the, the text. I mean, I can get really nerdy with the things about the Bible that I love. Okay, There's some real technical things that, you know, if you really got into digging and studying, you'd be like, whoa, didn't know that was there. Okay, that nobody else might care about, but I hear those things and I like them. You know, those, those kind of, they, they, they light me up a little bit. But I love, I love God's Word. I try my best to read it every day. I don't always succeed at that. But when I think about the Bible, I think of it as a, a light on a dark path. I think about it as Jesus said, that it's food for the soul, that it's sharper than a, a, a double-edged sword. It is the most fascinating book that I have ever read in my life. And so as we go forward in this, this series, a question should come to mind, and it's simply this. How can we, how can we in 2017, how can we in 2017 as the members of the church that meets at Cornerstone in Thomasville, Georgia, how can we see as God sees? Well, I think over the next three weeks, 
we're going to learn about that. And I think what we talk about in, in today and the upcoming two weeks is going to propel us into what we're going to talk about next as we move into our series called Real. That's about being authentic in what we believe and authentic in our actions and in our, in our thoughts and in our words and all of those things. Authentic in our, in our following of Christ. But I think when we begin to commit ourselves to the Word of God, that's how we will begin to see as God sees. So let's read a little bit about Ezra. Chapter 7 opens and he tells, and it tells us that he was around during the time of the kings. And the time that he was living and the events that he's writing about here in chapter 7 come during the reign of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And it goes on and it lists a really uh, long list of names that are very difficult to pronounce. And so I'm just going to skip that part. And we're going to go all the way down to verse 6 where it says, He, talking about Ezra, He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king granted him everything he had requested because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, Singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Xerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Now then notice the end of verse 9. The gracious hand of his God was on him because Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. The hand of God was on him because he chose to do these three things. You see, God has, God has equipped us for the task. He has given us his, his word that we can rely on, that we can learn from, that we learn about ourselves, that we learn about God and His story. And in order to see as, as God sees, we must use what God has given us. We must read, and doesn't this make sense? To learn about God, we need to read the book that talks about God. Doesn't that make sense? To learn about Jesus, we need to be spending time in the book that tells us the most about Jesus, right? That's how we do, and when we do that, that's how we begin to understand God. We begin to understand His plan and His mission. We begin to see the story. We begin to see the story unfold. And so our aim for this series, and hopefully our aim when it comes to the Word of God, is, is threefold. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this. Today, very simply, and, and these three messages, they come right out of Scripture. Today is take it in. Just as Ezra, he determined in his heart to study the law of God. He determined to study the Word of God. Okay, and that's a great thing to do, is it not? Yeah, come on, yes. Studying the Word of God is a great thing to do, yes or no? Good, good, I'm glad. We're, we're going to be interactive for a minute. Okay, that's a great thing to do. And if the verse ended right there, that'd be a great verse. Because anybody that chooses to take in the Word of God, that's a noble thing, and that's a, that's a noble undertaking but it doesn't stop writing right there it goes on and this is next week's message not only we're going to take it in but we got to do it you know it's, it's one thing it's one thing to read the word right but it's completely different to put it into practice in our lives 
Okay, And we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at some stuff from, from James. Because it's not enough just to read it. We have to put it into play and into practice in our lives. Now then, I, I think that, that we do pretty good about that. I think a lot of us, we, we do well. We do good at, at reading God's Word. We do good at, at the taking it in. And we do good at doing it. But sometimes I think with, we, we struggle with the next part. Because it's, it's one thing to take in the Word. It's one thing to put it into practice in our own lives. But a lot of times, people look at their faith as, as very individualized, very personal, very don't need to tell anybody else about it, share it with anybody else. But Edward didn't do that. Not only did he take it in, not only did he do it, but number three, he sent it out. And that's what we're going to talk about in that third message. As we talk about sending out the Word, and I'm not going to say that everybody's got to stand up and be willing to teach publicly or preach publicly, but if God has laid that on your heart, then we want to help you do that. And we're going to talk about some practical ways and what it means to be a, a living example and a living sacrifice. And by the way we live our lives, we end up sending out the Word of God, the message, the hope, the compassion. Everything is there. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over, over these next three weeks, through this short series. And then that's going to just set us up to go right from, from this stuff in Ezra and some other texts that we'll look at along the way. It's going to just bridge us right over into James, okay? Where we, we, we've gained the importance and understanding of the importance of the Word and, and doing it and sharing it with others, okay? And now we want to show people that, that we're real and we're sincere in our faith that our faith is authentic, that it's active, that it's, it's tangible, and that it means something to us. Well, in, in 586 B.C., the nation of Judah had slipped into sin. God had sent them off to a timeout in captivity. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar came in, the king of Babylon, and overthrew uh, Jerusalem, carried them off into captivity. Babylon is located in uh, modern-day Iraq. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad, if, uh, if you happen to wonder where that is. Now, around 538 B.C., uh, some of the Jews returned back to Jerusalem, and they came back to, to rebuild the temple, and they did. They rebuilt the temple. Um, 458, Ezra shows up, and he's got another band of refugees that are returning to their homeland, and he's bringing them and their families. But when he gets to Jerusalem, he realizes that it's a mess. Because the Israelites, they have married people who God specifically told them not to marry. Okay, And it's caused a, a huge problem because the people that God said stay away from were mixed up in all kinds of idolatry. Okay, they were uh, mixed up in all kinds of, uh, of just pagan worship, and exactly what God said would happen, happened. The people of God turned away from God, and they started worshiping idols, things, inanimate objects like this, you know? And Ezra sees this, and he's like, what are you doing? Do you not remember where we just came from? Do you not know where, do you not recognize that some of you were born in captivity? 
because your parents and your grandparents didn't listen to God? And now we're back and we're trying to rebuild the temple and yet you're just doing all these same things over again. And so what Ezra is going to do along with Nehemiah, they're going to lead this this restoration process. Ezra is on the scene. Ezra is a man who truly sees as God sees because he loves God's word. And what we know about Ezra is that he authored some of the Bible. Tradition tells us that he wrote most of First and Second Chronicles. We have his book of Ezra here. He uh, penned Psalm 119, which happens to be the longest psalm in the Bible. If you've ever read that one, I think it's something like 176 verses. And that whole psalm is all about the Word. In fact, we're going to pull one of those verses out in just a few minutes. Uh, he also led a council of about 120 men that compiled the Old Testament. Okay, when you pick up your Bible and you open up the Old Testament, it's put into its its, uh, final form because of Ezra. Okay, he's what you call a redactor or or an editor. And he's the one that said, him and these guys said, I think this goes together and these themes work together. He he composed the, uh, or he, he set the structure of the Psalms. Remember when we went through our Psalm study and we said there's five different books that make up the Psalms, and those five different books are set to mirror the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay? That didn't just happen. It's because Ezra loves God's Word. He sees the themes. He sees the stories. And he and these other people begin setting up Scripture so that we can have this story that unfolds for us and we can see these themes that that, that follow throughout the Word. And because he devoted himself, and this is what verse 9 says, because he devoted himself to God's word, God's hand was with him. Now, I think there's a lesson there, do you? That when we spend time in God's word, we learn about God, we learn about his son Jesus, we learn about what it means to, to operate under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we learn to see as God sees, and if we see as God sees, we can then learn to do as God does. God will bless that. God is looking for people who are devoted to Him, who are called out and are set apart and want to carry on the mission of advancing advancing His kingdom. And so there is a blessing that comes to us from spending time in God's Word. You go to the the end of the Bible, to the book of uh, of Revelation, the, the Apocalypse, And it says right there in the first few verses that there is a blessing on those who read the Word. Not only those who read it, but those who hear it. There is a blessing that comes from from hearing the words of God. But you know, there's a lot of people that they they look at the the Bible and they say, well, you know, it's just just an old book. It's been around for a long time. It's full of ancient stories. They don't really relate to, to modern Day. They don't have anything to say to me as an individual living in the, in the West, you know, in, in modern society and all of our technology and all of our, you know, advanced uh, scholarship and all these things. It just has nothing to say to us. You know, and I'm starting to think that there are a large number of Christians that kind of view the Bible as the same way. That Jesus is just this nice man who did some some nice things, 
But the Bible has no real power. It doesn't speak into their lives. And so, you know, we begin to, to wonder about that. And I think part of the reason is that you hear people describe the Bible, and they use different ways of, of talking about it. And you'll hear people say, you know, it's, it's a love letter. Okay, I, yeah, okay, some of it is like a love letter. But then you start reading like the conquest narratives in the book of Joshua, and there's people just getting wiped out left and right, and that kind of love letter thing doesn't always hold up all the way through, right? You know what I'm talking about? Come on now. It doesn't always hold up. So, okay, but there, yeah, there's parts in it that are really about love. You go, to, you go to some of the stuff that John wrote, and man, you see the love. You read the words of Jesus, and there's love in, in his words. Okay, well then I think the other mistake is we, we look at the Bible as, and, and a lot of people look at it this way, as it's just a rule book. Uh, or to them, the Bible represents all the fun that they're not allowed to have. Does that make sense? All right, now be honest, has anybody ever thought that before? Because there have been times where I'd be like, all right, Lord, what's this here for? Come on now. Come on, God, why is that really in there? All right, but that's, the, that's how people look at it. They look at it as like this, this, this rule book. That you can't do this and you, you can't do that. There's even, uh, there's even a, a, a book, and go ahead and put this slide up. There's even, uh, you know, there, there's even a, a, a section of people out there that they call the Bible God's instruction manual. Okay, this is it. You know, somebody comes to you and they're, you know, they're wanting to learn about God. They're, wanting to, uh, they're, they're struggling with their faith. Maybe their marriage is in trouble. Okay, and somebody will hand them the Bible and say, you just read this right here. That's... This, this right here is God's instruction book. And this, this will tell you all about life. And okay, I get it, I get it. There are instructions in the Bible. Okay, I get that. But I don't think that's the best approach for encouraging somebody to read the Bible. Because when's the last time you enjoyed a good instruction manual? You know? I mean, really, when was the last time that you curled up in your favorite chair and got a blanket and a cup of coffee and just pulled out an instruction manual and was like, wow, this thing's really a page turner? You know, it just, I mean, it just, I mean, imagine, but people treat the Bible that way. Imagine this. Brothers and sisters, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to turn in the instruction manual to the book on wheels and tires. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about the guidelines. The guidelines for using snow tires and chains. Verse 1 says, if possible, avoid fully loading your vehicle. Verse 2 said, chains may damage aluminum wheels. Verse 3, and listen to this one. Verse 3, use only SAE chain class S. P225 slash 60R17 tires on the rear of the vehicle only. And, and brothers, take heed. Listen to this warning that we find right here in the text. The tire pressure monitoring system is not a substitute for manually checking tire pressure. You know, the instruction manual for the Bible is a stinky one. Do you know why? You know why that is a terrible metaphor? Right here, because it is boring. It is absolutely boring. Nobody wants to read an instruction manual. Am I right? Come on. Who, re who really looks at an instruction manual and throws it away? 
Am I, I surely can't be the only one. You know, that's not the way to, to talk about the Bible. Okay, but we do that to people, don't we? Maybe because we don't understand the Bible. Maybe because we don't understand God and we don't understand our story. We don't understand what he's trying to say and what he's trying to get us to do. So we say, oh, yeah, it's just a, just a love letter. And somebody turns to the book of Joshua and they come back and go, what in the world are you talking about? Have you actually read this love letter? Or we say it's an instruction manual. And they're like, I don't want to read an instruction manual. That's boring. But we do this. We make God's word absolutely unattractive whatsoever. The last thing, the last thing the Bible is, is boring. The last thing the Bible is, is boring. You think it's boring? I want you to listen to this passage of Scripture. I want you to listen to the words and the phrases. God is telling the people. He's telling Jeremiah, who's going to tell the people, that basically, you guys stink right now. You're not doing good. You're not listening. And listen to how he describes this. This is from Jeremiah 13. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen to this. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy yourself linen underwear and put it on, but don't get it wet. You know how many times I've said that to my kids? <laughs> Look, you get wet underwear, you're going to be itching. Okay, God says, go and buy linen underwear and put it on, but don't get it wet. So I bought the underwear as the Lord instructed me. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the underwear that you bought and are wearing and go to the Euphrates River and hide it in a rocky crevice. Underwear, crevice. Well, it sounds like a wedgie. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. A long time later, the Lord said to me, Go at once to the Euphrates and get the underwear that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates and I dug up the underwear and I got it from the place where I had hidden it. But it was ruined. It was of no use whatsoever. Then the word, the word of the Lord came to me and said, This is what the Lord says. Just like this, I will ruin the great people of both Judah and Jerusalem. These evil people who refuse to listen to me who walk in the stubbornness of their own hearts and who have followed other gods to serve and, and worship, they will be like this underwear of no use whatsoever. Just as underwear clings to one's waist. So I fashioned the whole house of Israel and Judah to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So that they might be my people for my name, for my fame, my praise, glory, but they would not obey. The Bible is not boring. Weird? Yeah. Boring? Never. Life-changing? Absolutely. I think this is the greatest book that has, has ever been written. And I think that one of the, the best ways of approaching Scripture is to, to think of it as a five-act theodrama. Um, there's a uh, theologian, professor's name is uh, Dr. 
Dr. John Mark Hicks. He's brilliant. I've followed him for years. He's actually, I'm, I'm studying under him right now. Uh, part of the reason why I chose this particular Master of Divinity program is because he is one of the, uh, he's one of the professors in it, and uh, he's just written some really great stuff. And, and he writes this, this piece uh, that talks about Scripture as this, this five-act theodrama, as, as this way of approaching Scripture. Uh, and he says the five acts are, are creation, Israel, ministry of Jesus, church, and, and eschaton. And just hold it up right there for a second. Um, using the analogy of the five-act play, we see that God created. God in, invested. He incarnated. He poured out, and, and ultimately, He'll consummate His drama for the sake of the cosmos. The main actor in the drama is God, and we are invited to participate in that story. And so real quickly, I just want to uh, show you, just, I just want to give you a snapshot of what He says about these different acts. Act 1, you'll see it pop up on the screen right here. Act 1, creation. The divine act of creation declares the intent of God. God created what He wanted for the purposes of, which, of what He wanted. The divine community created a human community with a cosmic reality. Act 2, Israel. God graciously entered into covenant with a people who were called to represent or image God in the brokenness of the ancient Near East. God graciously initiates a relationship through the call of Abraham. He grounds, he grounds that relationship in redemptive acts, such as the Exodus, and he invites them to live in the light of God among the nations. The story of Israel is the story of a people struggling to live as the images of God in a fallen world. Act 3, the ministry of Jesus. Whereas Israel as with all of us, failed to image God in the world, God entered the world in person, in the person of the Logos, the Word. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the true image of God, the one who fully embodies God's intent and desire for participation in the story of God. The incarnate Son reveals the Father. Specifically, the ministry of Jesus is the inbreaking of the eschatological kingdom of God. We see in the ministry of Jesus the reality of God's kingdom, healing the sick, raising the dead, including of outsiders, good news for the poor. The ministry of Jesus is an eschatological ministry that bears witness to the nature of the kingdom of God. That is, it embodies the divine intent for creation itself as the curse is reversed. And then it moves into Act 4, which is the church. And this is the act that we're currently living in right now. The church, the people of, of God, the community of God, is the body of Christ. It is the presence of Jesus in the world through the Spirit. It is the image of God in the world. The temple in whom God dwells to minister redemptively in the world. And then the, the culminating act is Act 5, and this is eschaton. This is the consummation of the goal of God. It is the renewal of His creation where the fullness of the triune God might dwell with the people of God in the cosmos. It is the community restored and enjoyed. It is a renewed creation 
in which God rests. That's, that's the Bible right there. Doesn't that sound better than, hey, or here's an instruction manual? Okay, doesn't that go deeper than it's just a love letter? Because this is God's story. This is Israel's story. It's the story of, of Jesus, and it's our story. People don't want to read an instruction manual. Have you ever seen people gather around some instructions and get really excited? Okay, I mean, when's the last time you had people over to discuss the latest manual, okay, in your book club? It just doesn't happen. But people want to hear a good story, don't they? They want to hear a narrative. That's why the, the, the power of story is so strong, because they want to hear something that's going to take them on a journey. And that's exactly what, what Scripture does. That's why for, for this year, we're going to build in more testimony for 2017, because we want to hear the stories of how God is working in our lives. We're having something called, uh, called Conqueror's Day. And it's coming up in the spring where we're just going to say, okay, if you've got something that you want to share, how God has been working in your life, how you have been more than a conqueror in an area that you've been struggled, we want to give you an opportunity to share that. And we want to hear how God has been working. And what that is, is that's a chance to, to share our stories. Okay, remember the, the power. Remember when we've done those cardboard testimonies? We've done that two different times. We just hold up a piece of cardboard, and they just say, you know, what we've been dealing with or how God has led us through something. We don't even put words to that, yet they're so compelling because that's the power of story. That's what we find in Scripture. When we approach it as a narrative, as a story in which God has penned and invites us into and makes our own, Scripture then comes alive. That's how we should approach the Word. You see there's a link on the screen right there. That's the link to John Mark's article if you want to go and read and read more about that. But I believe, I believe in the power of the story. I believe we read this story in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Psalm 119.105, I, I mentioned this, this passage earlier, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet. You know, it, it, it shows us the way. Hebrews 4.12, Indeed, the word of God is, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God is not simply just a collection of words, but it's God's vehicle for communicating with His people, for telling us His story, our story, and it works in us, and it can be life-giving, and it can be life-changing. It is precise as a surgeon's knife, as it reveals who we are and who we are not. It penetrates to the very core, the very core of our being. And so the 
the point that I want to make today is very simple. As a matter of fact, go ahead and advance one. The point for this short series, we're just going to call it the point of sight. Because this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to see as God sees. And these points help us that way, very simply. And the point is this. If we want to see as God sees, we must hear the word and take it in. That's point number one. That's the the first part of the process as we begin this series. Okay? And as hopefully, if you'll kind of look at the arc of of our year and you'll look at what we're talking about right now and what we're going to be talking about over the next couple months even into into may almost june what we're talking about is growing in our discipleship growing in our own faith learning what it means to become people of of influence because i don't know if you've noticed But the world of Christians, we're losing influence. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that not many people care that much? Maybe it's because we don't care that much. You ever thought about that? And so what this year is about, it's about us being more than conquerors, not of our own power, but through Him who loved us. More than conquerors means that we are doing the things of God. It means that we've learned the things of God because we've been in the Word that tells us about God. And it means that we are authentic. And it means that we're genuine. It means that the things that we say we believe, we actually do those things. And the way that we live our lives becomes a witness to those around us. When the witness around us begins to get noticed, we can gain influence. When we begin to live our life in such a way because we're overcoming, because we're more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us, and then somebody says, hey, you know, what, what's with you? What's, what's going on in your life? I mean, you've had all this stuff happen, and yet you're not, you're not miserable. Or somebody invites you to go and do something, and you don't want to go do it, because that's maybe not something you ought to be doing, and they ask you why. They're inviting you to say, hey, here, here's why. When somebody comes to you with those things, they're saying, okay, I'm willing to listen to your influence. And then it's our job to influence people in a responsible way, to influence people the way that Jesus would, not in a manipulative way, not in a way that oppresses or takes advantage of someone but in a way that lifts someone up and puts others ahead of our own needs. That's how we become people of influence. That's how we take in the Word, do it, and send it out. That's our goal for this year. That's one of the many ways that we will become 
more than conquerors. I don't want us to be apathetic. I don't want us to be casual in our following of Jesus. I don't want it to be just another thing that we do in the list of things that we do. I want it to be who we are. And everything else flows out of it. Your job is affected by who you are. You do your job a certain way based on who you are. You teach children at school based on who you are. You coach players based on who you are. Does that make sense? That's what it means to be a person of influence. That's what we want as a body of Christ. And I hope, I hope that you want this. I hope that you desire this and you will be praying about this. If we want to begin to see as God sees, we must hear the word and take it in.